perhaps I can say a word or two while we're uh, still waiting. First of all, a very warm welcome to everybody to the final meeting this year of the Aristotelian Society. We'll follow the usual format. Um, when Susanna speaks, she'll speak for between 45 minutes and an hour, and then we'll have a brief break for tea or coffee, and then a question and answer session, which will see us through to about 7.15. Before I introduce um, tonight's speaker, Susanna Siegel, I would just like to say a word of thanks to Leia, who's just been distributing the handouts. Um, this is uh, Leia's last meeting of the Aristotelian Society in her capacity as managing editor. It would be hard to exaggerate how wonderful a job and how efficient a job she's done to ensure the smooth running of the Society. We're very grateful. Um, her work will actually continue beyond this meeting into some meetings that we'll be having at this year's joint session in Warwick. So this is not quite the end of the road for Leia, but still this is the last of these meetings. Um, and thanks ever so much to Leia for all her excellent work. So it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Susanna Siegel, who will be giving this evening's paper. Uh, Susanna, is Edgar Peirce or Pierce? Peirce. You're not sure. <laughs> we say Pierce, but you probably say Pierce. <laughs> um, one of those. Uh, professor of philosophy at Harvard University. Um, internationally renowned for her work in the philosophy of perception. Her most recent work um, has been concerned with the interrelation of perceptual experiences and various cognitive processes. And tonight's paper will be a further example of this work. Um, as I say, it will be the usual format. Um, Susanna will first of all speak for between 45 minutes and an hour. So without any further ado, let me hand over to Susanna, whose paper is entitled Epistemic Charge. Okay, thanks a lot. Um, so I wanted to begin with a pretty familiar phenomenon, which is sometimes called projection. Um, so someone named Vivek is a performer, let's suppose, and he's become vain. So one way that his vanity uh, manifests itself is that he just comes away from every performance thinking everybody really loved it. Everyone thought he was a top-notch performer. And in one version of this type of influence of his self-conception on his perception, um, it's kind of like wishful thinking. It's, he's responding um, to what he sees by jumping to conclusions. So if someone has a neutral expression on his face, he comes away thinking they really liked it. Um, um, and that's, that's familiar, and we know that that kind of wishful thinking is typically um, epistemically bad. It's epistemically ill-founded, formed epistemically badly. Um, why? Well, because it's a kind of jumping to conclusions. If he just went by the evidence he has, he should suspend judgment or um, have more possibilities open than he leaves for himself. So that's wishful thinking. It's a paradigm case of uh, epistemic irrationality. Now, there's another kind of influence that his vanity could have on his perception where it in influences his perceptual experience, so what he responds to when he makes the judgment. Um, so we could call this wishful seeing. So um, this is a bit like wearing sunglasses, except with sunglasses, you typically know that you're wearing sunglasses. And the kind of influence I'm talking about um, is one where uh, Vivek isn't aware that his vanity is influencing how things look to him in the first place. They're influence, it's influencing the very visual appearances um, that he has. Um, and so I'm 
addressing in this paper an epistemic question about that situation. So we kind of know the answer to the epistemic, the analogous epistemic question about wishful thinking. Is wishful thinking epistemically bad? Yes. Um, it's a paradigm case of epistemic irrationality. But how about wishful seeing? Um, how about wishful seeing? Um, he doesn't have to jump to conclusions if his vanity um, just gives him the visual experience uh, that's congruent with his self-conception as kind of overly great. Um, all he has to do is endorse his visual experiences, which misleadingly represent or present uh, the faces in the audience he's talking to as highly pleased, uniformly pleased. So that's my main question, which is on the handout as main question. Um, when Vivek's vanity affects his, his perceptual experience without his awareness of it, can that influence make the perceptual experience irrational? Can it make the perceptual experience irrational? Now that might sound like a funny question to you because you might think, well, no, because perceptual experiences can't be irrational. Um, so what I want to do is sharpen the question a little bit in a way that will address some of those doubts in case you have them right off the bat, which I suspect uh, many of you do, and I would too, if I were you, if I hadn't thought about it a lot. So that's my plan. My first thing I'm going to do is sharpen this question by talking a lot more about what epistemic property I'm asking about when I ask this question. And I'm going to, my label for that epistemic property is epistemic charge. Um, so I'll spend a bunch of time building up to telling you what that is, what that property is, so that we can sharpen the question. Um, and eventually the thesis that I favor and that I'm going to go some way to defending today is called the epistemic charge thesis, which just says, experiences are epistemically charged. And once we know what epistemic charge is, we'll be in a position to see what that thesis means. And at that point, we can think about reasons for and against it. OK, the second thing I'll do um, is ask whether anything in the nature of experience precludes it from having this property. So does anything in the nature of experience preclude it from being epistemically charged? My answer is going to be no. So that's already some. Uh, bit of a defense of the thesis. It's not a full defense of it, obviously, um, but I am going that far in defending it. Um, and then the last thing I'm going to do is think through with you um, whether what the implications would be for the overall global structure of justification um, of the entirety of a person's beliefs if all experiences were epistemically charged. So if all, if all experiences had this epistemic property that I'm going to define and talk about, um, how would that affect the global structure of justification? So um, just to give you a feel for why this question in particular is important, um, think about unjustified justifiers. So in epistemology, 20th century analytic epistemology, perceptual experiences really had a, a starring role to play. They played the role in many people's thought as unjustified justifiers. They were things that, um, according to many philosophers, could provide justification to beliefs, but didn't need justification themselves, and in fact, weren't the kinds of things that could even be justified or unjustified. Um, so one thing we could wonder about is if experiences are epistemically charged, um, or that's some kind of epistemic property that's in the vicinity of justification. Um, can epistemically charged experiences play anything like the role of unjustified justifiers? Because whether, whether, whether there are or aren't unjustified justifiers in the picture of justification makes an awfully big difference to your overall uh, theory of the epistemic role of perception in the mind. OK, so my answer to this question um, of whether epistemically charged experiences can play anything like the role of unjustified justifiers, my answer to that is going to be yes. Um, 
Okay, so those are the ways in which I'm going to defend the epistemic charge thesis. I'm, it's too big of a project to defend all in one paper, to defend from the ground up from first principles all in one paper. Um, but uh, those are the parts of the defense I'm gonna be offering today. Okay, so let me tell you about this property. What is epistemic charge? And to bring your attention onto this property, um, I wanna start by looking more closely at a uh, at the property of being, a property of belief can have of being ill-founded. So I want to look a little bit closely at this idea of a belief being formed epistemically badly and um, talk about what that involves. And we can distinguish two different aspects of ill-foundedness of beliefs. So one is static and one is forward-looking. Um, so it's the static aspect that's pretty widely thought not to be able to apply to experiences. Um, but the forward-looking aspect um, is uh, arguably can apply to it. And many people have thought in 20th century analytic epistemology that, it, that, this, that experiences can have the, the forward-looking property, just to orient, orient you. Um, you know, some people denied that they could, such as Davidson and other coherentists and classical foundationalists who thought that the story of how you get justification for your external world beliefs always went through introspective beliefs. So first you had your experiences, then you self-described your experience. So it's like, I seem to see something red and round. And then you had a belief, an introspective belief. And from there, you could go on to have justified beliefs about whether something red and round actually was in the external world. Um, so on those pictures, um, on those pictures, perceptual experiences that present you with a red and round thing in the external world, they didn't have any very direct role in justification. Um, but if you think that that type of epistemology didn't give enough of a direct role to experience, then you think that perceptual experiences do have some kind of forward-looking power to provide epistemic support to other beliefs. So um, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about these two aspects of, of ill-foundedness as I think of them. And then, um, and then we'll be in a position to see what epistemic charge is. Okay, so let me start with the static aspect. Um, so we're talking about ill-foundedness of beliefs. So um, the, when a belief is ill-founded, one thing that's true about it is that it detracts from the subject's rational standing. So you're um, a little bit less rational than you could be if you have an unjustified, badly formed belief. So that's what I'm calling the static aspect of ill-foundedness. Now, um, and when people say experiences aren't the kinds of things that can be justified or unjustified, um, what they're saying is this type of static property that beliefs can have isn't a property that experiences can have. The other aspect of being ill-founded um, that applies to beliefs, and I'm going to argue also to experiences, is this forward-looking property. So um, the forward-looking property in the case of belief, uh, in the case of belief being ill-founded, is that a belief has the potential to make subsequent beliefs formed on its basis ill-founded. So if you start off with an ill-founded belief and then you form a belief on its basis, that can um, make it the case that that subsequent belief is ill-founded because of its relationship, its epistemic dependence on the original one. Um, so forming B star, that's a belief, on the basis of belief B will thereby make B star ill-founded. Now there's a wrinkle about maybe about something I'm calling washing out, which we can get into if you'd like. Um, but that's the rough idea about what this forward-looking power is. Now I want to tell you uh, a couple of things about how I'm thinking of this power so that you can see why um, it see why Modulo, the coherentists and classical foundationalists, uh, this forward-looking power is a property that experiences have too. 
Um, okay, so the first observation um, is that um, a belief can have this forward-looking power to make, you know, B, belief B can have the forward-looking power to make the star ill-founded, whether or not B, the belief, is a reason for B star, the other belief, and whether or not the belief itself harbors some epistemic support or anti-support for B star. So I'm, I'm saying this because um, you, may be, uh, you may have thought about this question of whether when you have a reason for a belief, you might have asked yourself, what kind of thing is that reason? So is that reason itself a belief, or is it um, facts about the world? Um, or is it something else? And some people who I mentioned in the handout, for example, Hannah Ginsburg and Dennis Stamp and Jonathan Dancy and others, um, suggest that typically um, beliefs aren't really reasons for other beliefs. Um, rather, it's the kind of the facts in the world that determine uh, what you ought to believe, what's reasonable for you to believe, not the beliefs that track or, that track or fail to track those facts. So that's a debate, you, that's, a, that's an issue that this debate um, grabs onto. I think it's a good issue. Um, and my point is that uh, the forward-looking power of a belief to ill-found a subsequent belief is not sensitive to that issue. It doesn't matter uh, whether you agree with um, the people who say that um, the people who say that um, beliefs are reasons for other beliefs can be, uh, or the people who say that they aren't. It doesn't matter because to say, as I'm talking, that a belief has a forward-looking power doesn't entail that it's a reason um, at all. It's just a different thing. So you should think about the forward-looking power property um, as simply the property that if um, you know, belief B has this forward-looking power to ill-found B star, just means, all there is to it, uh, is, is that um, if you form B star on the basis of B, then B star and B is ill-founded, then B star is thereby ill-founded. Okay, and that could be true whether or not B is a reason for B star. Okay, um, and now a, a related point um, is that uh, uh, beliefs having the power to make subsequent beliefs formed on its basis ill-founded, it doesn't entail that the subjects just having the belief is sufficient to give the belief that power. So when we talk about you know, belief has the power to do something, that doesn't mean it has the power all by itself. Maybe it needs some help. Maybe it needs some help from other mental states. Maybe it needs some help from some external conditions. Um, that doesn't stop it from having the power. That's just a, kind of the way I'm talking about forward-looking power. Okay. Um, and now I've been defining this, I, I said here are these two aspects of ill-foundedness, the static aspect um, and the forward-looking aspect. And I've been talking about the forward-looking aspect. Um, now well-foundedness, the property of being formed epistemically well, has the same two aspects. It has a static aspect, whereby um, if a belief is well-founded, then it reflects well on the subject's rational standing. Um, it doesn't detract from it, um, for example. And then it has this forward-looking aspect. If you have a well-founded belief, and um, then you form a subsequent belief on its basis, that can contribute to the subsequent beliefs being well-founded as well. So the static and the forward-looking aspects, so I think they're not often distinguished, they are just two aspects. Uh, they're two dimensions of epistemic evaluation of beliefs. Okay, now, um, at what's epistemic charge? Epistemic charge um, is a property that combines these two aspects and then adds a relation between them. So this, is, this word, charge, is, I'm using it because I am... Uh, I am leaning on a metaphor of electricity. So you should think about electric charge, epistemic charge. Um, so, uh, and 
like electric charge, epistemic charges have valences. So we can define uh, negative, the property being negatively epistemic charged in this way. If something, a mental state or an event, is negatively epistemic charged, um, then it has both the static and forward-looking aspects of ill-foundedness that I just went through, and it can transmit the negative epistemic status, that's the static feature, um, to subsequent beliefs formed on its basis. So I want to pause to give you a moment to think about um, the difference between the forward-looking power and the, the static property and how they relate to each other. So what the forward-looking power says the, is that um, if you form B star on the basis of B, um, and B is ill-founded, then B star is ill-founded. But that forward-looking power doesn't yet say anything about why that's so. So it doesn't say anything about, you know, the transmission of a contagion or an illness or epistemic badness between B and B star. The static property, however, um, is a property that could be just such a thing that gets transmitted from B to B star and explains why it is that when you form B star on the basis of B, then B star is ill-founded if B is. So epistemic charge is a property that combines those two and then adds this bit about transmission. And then similarly, um, a, a mental state or an event is positively epistemic charged, just in case it has the static and the forward-looking aspects of well-foundedness, and it can transmit that positive epistemic status, that's a static feature, uh, to subsequent beliefs formed on its basis. Sorry. Okay, now in principle, um, a mental state could have um, both of these aspects without the possibility of transmitting them. So, um, so the clause about transmission, it doesn't introduce any redundancy once you have the rest. You really have to add the bit about transmission. So epistemic charge is the property of being either positively or negatively epistemically charged. Um, and um, so in other words, first I defined the valenced properties, and then I defined epistemic charge simpliciter as in terms of the valenced properties. Okay, um, now you, I hope you can see because I tried to tell you so that I, I, I hope it worked, that I, I, that I made you able to see by this point that the reason I'm going through these prop, you know, describing the properties in this way is because I want to um, show you, I want, I want to give uh, you as clear a sense as I can of uh, the idea that experiences could be epistemically charged and which part of that idea is one that you may already accept. Um, um, unless you're kind of got off the bus much earlier with the idea that experiences ever provide epistemic support for beliefs, um, and the part that you might be unsure, but you want to think a little bit more about it before you decide what you think about it, or perhaps you want to reject it right away. So the epistemic charge thesis says experiences are among the mental states that can have both of these aspects of ill-foundedness and well-foundedness, not just the forward-looking power bit, um, which I was careful to define in a way which, you know, Modulo, Davidson, and classical foundationalists, um, people, you know, often already think that experiences can have that kind of forward-looking power. Um, but epistemic charge says um, that the experiences, when they have that power, they have that um, because they are transmitting this other property. Um, that's the static one. The one that um, reflects something about the subject's rationality, bears on the subject's rational standing. Okay, so I want to say a bit about the electricity metaphor and point out potentially one of its limits. Um, so the electricity has, um, well, there's valence, you know, from, you know, about, you know, uh, neutrons and um, et cetera. You know about uh, 
positive charge and negative charge um, in, in electricity and fundamental in, in these particles of matter. Um, and if uh, VVEX experience has a negative epistemic charge, then it has a negative epistemic status. Um, so okay, I think I've already explained the valence bit. Um, but then there's also a question of increment. So just as a belief can be more justified or anti-justified than another, an experience can be more epistemically charged than another. So justification and epistemic charge both come in increments, um, just as there are voltages or increments of charge in electricity too. Okay, so um, I found I, when I was thinking about this, um, it seemed to me that electricity was a pretty decent metaphor because it extended, it had valence and it had increments. So that part was good. Um, now, uh, this um, I'm, I'm going to say. I'm going to make an observation about what exactly epistemic charge applies to that actually might not matter for most of the discussion, but I want to flag it so that it doesn't distract you. Um, so if we speak very exactly, uh, what's epistemically charged, it's not just the experience, um, but it's the experience together with some of its contents or some of the properties it's presenting to the subject um, or some of its phenomenal aspects. I'm using this disjunction because there are different ways of thinking about how experiences themselves are structured. and. Um, um, so you may not want to talk about contents of experience. I think it's a good way of talking, an illuminating way of talking, but you may not. I don't think that debate matters. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, but here is, um, here is why it's not, here is why you need something in that vicinity in order to talk about what epistemic charge applies to. Because if you think a single experience presents you with many different properties, you're related to many different properties, like you know, Jill sees Jack walking toward her and he's carrying a bag and he's got his face and he's, the way he walks and there's all these different ways that he looks to her. And um, in a content framework, you would express this by saying there are many different contents for experience. In other frameworks, you might say um, that Jill is, um, acquainted or related to various different properties of Jack. Um, now, uh, her single experience that encompasses all of these uh, um, different presentations, um, could, they could have different epistemic properties. So she, her, you know, Jill's fear that Jack is angry might influence whether J Jack is presented to her as angry um, without influencing at all um, whether he's uh, presented her as walking quickly or something like that. Um, so those, you could call them sub-experiences of Jack walking quickly is, I'm um, giving you, I, might not be epistemically charged or epistemically affected by Jill's prior expectations, but, um, but her experience of his face might be. Okay, um, so it's charged isn't just this experience, if you think about one whole experience, it's experience given, experience of some properties or something like that. Okay, now I'll just mention a potential limit of the electricity metaphor, which is that um, a single experience might be able to have both positive and negative valence, even once you take account of the observation I just made. So even if you say, well, you know, how about Jill's experience of Jack is angry? Perhaps that could have both positive valence, positive epistemic charge, um, because it could um, add to her rational standing in some ways, but um, it could detract from her rational standing in other ways. Um, now, I think probably the same thing's true of beliefs, but probably not of particles. So if you talk about these particles of matter, they're not both positively charged and negatively charged. So I think that is a limit of the electricity metaphor. Um, I believe that I'm right about that. Okay, so um, 
I want to now sharpen this question so we can really get back to the case of Vivek, which is why I think it's, it's cases like the case of Vivek where you have some psychological state which is influencing your perception and you want to know what kind of epistemic impact does that influence have. Um, and I'm trying, to sharp, I, I, I'm trying to zero in on a specific, uh, more specific version of that question um, so that we can try to answer it. Okay, so, and I'm using the notion of epistemic charge to sharpen the question that we're asking. So the main question again was, remember Vivek's vanity affects his perceptual experience. It affects how the faces look to him in the crowd. Um, and the main question asks whether when that happens, um, can that influence on his perceptual experience itself, can it make the perceptual experience irrational? Um, and now perhaps you're thinking, well, how could ex perceptual experiences be irrational? What are you even asking about? So now we have a sharpened version of the main question, which is, well, this is what we're asking. Uh, when Vivek's vanity affects his perceptual experience, can the influence make his experience negatively epistemic char epistemically charged? Can it make the experience have the property like the kind beliefs have when um, they detract or add to the rational standing of the subject? Um, okay, now the answer I favor to this question is yes, uh, Vivek's vanity can give his experience negative epistemic charge. Um, now, there is a kind of, you wouldn't want to just jump right in and start trying to address this question, um, because you'd want to first address a more fundamental question, which is whether it's even possible for experiences to be epistemically charged. Um, that question is, um, well, you know, maybe arising in your mind if, if you were wondering how experiences could be irrational to begin with. Um, okay, now, if you thought, so I'm going to step back now and take for one moment a uh, different perspective on the nature of perception that speaks to this question, which is the perspective um, that uh, George Pitcher had and David Armstrong and various others have had since then um, when, they ex when they think that perhaps experiences really just are a form of belief. So if experiences really were beliefs and you think, well, all beliefs can be epistemically charged and they can bear on the rational standing of a subject, then you'd kind of have a quick answer to this question about whether experiences can be epistemically charged. Because if you think, well, beliefs can be and experiences are beliefs, then it kind of falls out that, yes, experiences can be. Okay. So um, I like the end result of that, but I don't like the way they get there because I think um, experiences are not beliefs. So in the written version of this paper, I have some discussion of that issue, but I'm not going to go over that here. Um, instead, I want to just address this kind of fundamental rejection of my answer. The fundamental rejection says, look, there's just something in the nature of experience that precludes it from having an epistemic charge. So I'm just kind of, you know, um, if you, if, if, I hope you're feeling that I'm belaboring a point because that means I'm not going too quickly. Um, so um, I'm just trying to um, get underneath the reaction that I can completely understand if, if people have it, though I don't think it's right, but I want to get underneath the reaction that says there's something, there's a fundamental error in thinking perceptual experiences can be, experiences can be irrational or rational. There's an error in thinking that way, um, according to this perspective, and I want to try to um, see where that idea is coming from and undermine it a bit. Okay, so um, that brings me to the second part of the discussion, which is on page five if you're following along. Um, so this is the part where I want to address the question of whether the nature of experiences precludes them from having epistemic charge. Okay. Um, so there seem to be two features of perceptual experiences that seem to preclude it from having epistemic charge. So if you thought there was something in the nature of experience that would get in the way of 
uh, having this property that I went through, um, then one idea is that subjects are passive in having experiences, and that's why experiences can't be epistemically charged. And then another idea is that experiences are unadjustable, rationally unadjustable by the subject. You can't adjust your experiences in the way you can adjust your beliefs, and you might think that that's why they can't have an epistemic charge. So I want to talk about these two different features of experience to see um, whether they really do preclude it from having epistemic charge. So let's start with passivity. Um, okay, so it's often said that experiences are passive mental states. I'm sure there are references much earlier than Ernie Sosa, but here's one from Ernie Sosa, um, who says, when experiences help explain the rational standing of some other state or action, they do not thereby problematize their own rational standing. Why? Uh, being so passive, they have no rational standing. Okay, so there he is linking. He doesn't, by the way, endorse this idea, but he's articulating it nicely. Um, so he is linking the idea of the passivity of experience to their not having a rational standing. So um, there are different kinds of passivity, and I want to go through three of them, which are all the ones I can think of. Tell me if you can think of others. Um, um, because it seems that none of them really are tied to, none of them really explain why, none of them preclude experiences from having a rational standing, being epistemically charged. Okay, so first kind, uh, just in order of um, convincing us, starting with the kind of least promising, I think. So, okay, everyone should agree, I think, that um, perception is, um, well, it doesn't matter whether you agree with it. There is phenomenological passivity, so it's often, at least, not part of the phenomenology of perception that our experiences seem to result. It's not part, it is not part of the phenomenology of perceiving that our perceptual experiences are resulting from active reasoning, the kind of thing you do, which doesn't happen all that often, except maybe it does for you since you're philosophers. But, um, you know, you actually sit down and think about something. This is something you have to go out of your way to do. Um, you could live your whole life without ever doing that and be perfectly fine. You'd still be reasoning. It's just you wouldn't have this especially active form of reasoning. Okay, um, so that's true. It's doesn't, not part of your, you know, perceive all day long, but you don't actively reason all day long. Um, it's not part of the phenomenology of perception that you're actively reasoning. So in that sense, it's passive, passive relative to that kind of reason. So that's true. Um, but what does that tell us about whether experiences are precluded from being epistemically charged? Well, nothing. Why? Because the same is true of belief. You have all these beliefs, it's time for lunch, that your neighbors are kind, and so on. Um, Phenomenological passivity is a very poor diagnostic of epistemic charge because we know that beliefs are epistemically charged, but they are also passive in this way. Okay, so that's not a good diagnostic for, if we wanna know, you know, is there something about experiences that prevents them from having this epistemic property? We shouldn't look to phenomenological passivity because it doesn't seem to do that. If it did, then we would have to say that beliefs aren't epistemically charged, and that's not right. Okay. A different kind of passivity is passivity relative to any kind of reasoning, not just the superactive kind. Um, um, so you might think, look, experiences just can't result from reasoning. Reasoning is not the kind of thing that can generate an experience. Okay. Um, now, that may or may not be true. I actually don't think that is true, but let's just pretend it is true, um, or suppose that it is true. Um, we also, again, I don't think it does the job that this moment in the dialectic wants it to do, which is it wants it to show that um, experiences are precluded from having epistemic charge. But when we apply our epistemic norms of belief, norms of being epistemically formed, formed epistemically well or badly, um, we apply those norms even when beliefs don't result from active reasoning. So there are all sorts of beliefs that don't result from reasoning, like introspective beliefs, for example, um, that is beliefs you form about what kind of mental states you're in. Um, 
um, cases where you just simply endorse your experience. So here I am talking in a kind of framework of contents, but if you, you know, have an experience that Jack is angry and then you just believe that exact same content the way McDowell thinks you can literally believe your eyes, um, that doesn't seem to involve reasoning. It's certainly not reasoning that is aptly um, characterized by looking at the contents of the premises that's moving from P to P. It's not very much of, not very much of reasoning. Um, I cite an article at the end of the paper about anchoring and adjustment in social uh, inferences. Anchoring and adjustment are labels uh, for certain heuristics. Um, so I'm happy to talk about that, that study or others like them if, if you're interested. But uh, the gist of the point here is that um, there are examples where you form beliefs about what other people's habits are likely to be. Um, and uh, the, there are factors that determine what those beliefs are going to be, which really seem to have very, nothing to do with um, nothing to do with what you would identify as your reasons for those beliefs. Um, so those are at least candidates for beliefs that are not formed by reasoning, that are not introspective, they're not cases of endorsing experiences. So I'm happy to talk about those cases if you want to hear more about them. Okay, so my point is that resulting from reasoning can't be a necessary condition for being epistemically charged, or else, uh, once again, we'd have the consequence that beliefs are not epistemically charged. Okay, and then finally, here's I think really the most important idea, um, is that you might think um, experiences are passive with respect to deliberation. So all these ideas are kind of similar, but I want to you can just distinguish them, and the dialectic is different depending on the exact version of passivity you're talking about. Um, so you can't form experiences by deliberating or by reasoning explicitly, whereas you might think that any belief could in principle be formed in this way, even if not all beliefs are, um, perhaps you might think, any belief could be formed in that way. And that, you might think, is why beliefs are epistemically charged. That's why beliefs are in what Davidson calls the house of reason, the kinds of things that we apply uh, epistemic norms to. Um, okay, so this, I think, is a good meaty idea. Um, but we can maybe disambiguate the idea about what grounds the epistemic evaluability of beliefs in a couple of ways. So one disambiguation is that if you take any believer um, all of her beliefs could have been formed by deliberation. So for any believer, all of her beliefs could have been formed by deliberation, whether maybe they weren't all actually formed that way, but they all could have been formed that way. Okay. Um, and one reason to doubt that's true even of belief is that um, you might think that believers, you know, individual kind of believing, believing, believing systems such as people, uh, maybe those are the only believing systems there are, who knows, um, they need some kind of startup assumptions to get a system of belief off the ground. So Peter Elton has a nice discussion of this issue, but of course you could also point to uh, um, arguments that either we actually have or that um, it would be absolutely impossible for anyone not to have some kind of innate ideas or innate representations in order to go on to form more representations. So in the um, case of psychology, I will direct you to Susan Carey's work on core cognition. Um, and I'm happy to talk about whether you think that uh, what she calls core cognition, if you're a Carey reader, you will know what that term means, um, whether that is or isn't a form of belief. I myself think it is a form of belief, but you might uh, disagree, but I'm happy to talk about that. But I just want to highlight the kind of macro level point here, um, which is that um, you know, I'm, 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 or I'm trying to probe the thought that um, passivity relative to deliberation um, is what precludes experiences from um, being the kinds of things that can bear on the subject's rational standing, and when we look closely at what that would mean, um, uh, unpacking it one way, it would have the consequence that uh, beliefs were also unavaluable, which seems wrong. 
Okay, now there's another disambiguation of the idea that any belief could in principle be formed by deliberation, even if not all of them are, and that's uh, what I'm calling at the bottom of page five, disambiguation two. So this one says, for any belief, it could be formed by deliberation. So even if it isn't the case that all of a subject's beliefs could be so formed because, say, there's a, you need some startup assumptions, perhaps if you just pick any individual belief, it could be formed by deliberation. So that seems like something else somebody might mean if they say any belief could be formed by deliberation. Um, so just in the case of introspection, for example, um, your self-ascriptions of beliefs or of uh, perceptual experiences, um, you know, of course, those typically aren't formed by deliberation, but that exact same belief perhaps could be formed by deliberation. You might, in some strange case, take that same belief and form it in a different way other than by introspection. Okay. <clears throat> so I don't know. I think I, I find, you can tell me if you find it, but I find something like this idea in Davidson. So I, I really like this paper, Paradoxes of Irrationality. Um, that's where he uses this wonderful phrase, the house of reason. Um, so he's he's thinking through whether beliefs belong to the house of reason that is there, the kinds of things that can be epistemically evaluated because they're formed in response to reasons. Um, and for any belief that's formed, um, you could form it by deliberating for those reasons. So if you think, as, as Davidson does, it's just something internal to belief that you form beliefs for reasons, then you might think, well, you could, have, you could deliberate from those very reasons. Most of the time, you form beliefs for reasons and you don't do it deliberatively, but the reasons are always in the picture, according to him. Um, and once they're in the picture, then you might think you could deliberate from them, even if you don't actually do that. Okay, so that's a different version of this idea that is trying to pinpoint this crucial asymmetry with experiences. You might think, this is what's true of beliefs, and that's why, um, that's why they're in the house of reason. But that's not true of experiences, um, and that's why they're not in the house of reason, and that's why they can't be irrational, and that's why they can't be epistemically charged. Okay. So, um, so my reply to this idea about belief that's uh, made in the name of precluding experiences from being in the house of reason is that what the idea does that's kind of analogous to something Davidson says, it makes the kind of main diagnostic for belonging to the house of reason formability by deliberation. So beliefs that are not formed or formable in those ways are, um, well, it, it tr let me back up one moment. Um, it makes the main diagnostic for belonging to the house of reason uh, formability by deliberation. Um, and then um, beliefs that uh, aren't, like, aren't formed in those ways just have to be kind of pale approximations of it. So you can never really get away from deliberatability, from being able to form it by deliberation. All you can have are at most pale approximations of that, but you have to stay within that structure. That's what I find in Davidson. Um, okay, so I think this is a wrong way of thinking both a, a, about belief um, um, because it sort of treats rational phenomena as having this ideal form and then there are kind of pale approximations of it and that's it. There's just this kind of ideal form of believing. Um, but why should we think it has an ideal form? And um, perhaps there are multiple paradigms of rational phenomena in the vicinity of belief. For example, think about, well, think about skills or thinking about a toddler knowing that her socks are on. So, you know, if you've ever hung around with anybody that age, you know what's for us a kind of thing that happens unthinkingly in the background for them is, you know, really an event in the morning, um, which is putting on your socks. Um, okay, now they end up believing that they put their socks on, and I can tell you, and you know anyway, that they didn't form that belief via deliberation. Um, 
But they nonetheless have a kind of belief or knowledge that goes with that skill that suggests that epistemic charge of belief is not grounded in each belief arising from a process that's kind of going from reason, something that could be turned into a deliberation if only someone was more self-conscious or um, explicit about it. Okay, so those are my reasons for thinking that passivity of the subject and having an experience is really not a good uh, ground for saying they're precluded from having epistemic charge. Now I want to talk about the second feature of experience that seems to preclude it from having epistemic charge, which is the idea that experiences can't be uh, adjusted in response to rational criticism. Okay, so um, when we argue about things, we hope that we can hear reasons from other people and maybe change our mind if there are good reasons and hear us get some more evidence and change what we believe in light of the evidence. That's an example of adjusting what we believe in response to rational criticism. And then somebody might say, that's kind of the, really the, that's the fact that we can do that with our beliefs is why beliefs are in the house of reason. But if we can't do that with experiences, that's a reason to think experiences aren't in the house of reason. They are precluded from having epistemic charge. Okay, so, um, here I think, again, we can distinguish different kinds of adjustability or unadjustability. So you could say that experiences are unadjustable by deliberation, but we've kind of already just been through that. Um, um, adjustability by deliberation, I think, is a bad diagnostic for epistemic charge for reasons I just went through when I talked about the toddler and skill and there being not just one paradigm of rational activity or rational mental activity. Um, a different kind of unadjustability is disowning an experience. So you might say, um, um, look, you can't, you can disown, you can change your belief and give it up, okay. Um, but um, you can't give up your experience, you know, say you learn that your experience, say you're Vivek, and now you've learned that your vanity is really what's behind your experience of the faces in the audience being very pleased, uniformly. Um, okay, then what? Um, you can't, you can't just stop, you might think, you can't just stop having his experience. You know, maybe he knows that he's now having one of these experiences formed this way, but he's not stopping it. He's not giving it up. He's not disowning it. Um, okay. Um, whereas with belief, you can kind of give it up. Um, so that's a disanalogy. And you might think that's the disanalogy that matters. It says why experiences are uh, precluded from epistemic charge. Okay, so my reply to this is that um, it's true that you can't always stop yourself from having an experience short of closing your eyes or something, but you can do something else, which is you can cease to rely on it in your reasoning. And in fact, when you cease to rely on it in your reasoning, that's kind of what you do when you give up the belief. Um, what it is to give up the belief is for the belief not to then operate in your reasoning and, um, and in guiding your action. So there's kind of a fundamental similarity in the kind of disowning of experiences that you can do with giving up of belief. Now, there's also a difference, and I'm not trying to deny the difference, which is that the experience might persist even after you disown it, even after you stop, um, after you stop relying on it. Um, but if it does persist, one should say if you, have, if you think that experiences are rational or irrational, then you should say there's a kind of residual irrationality in this person. Because on the picture where experience is irrational, and then you learn that it's irrational, but you still keep having it, um, that's sort of like you know, someone who picture them as being kind of very obtuse and they're disowning an attitude, like an attitude of disrespect for someone, um, but they kind of lack an understanding that they need to correct all the perspectives that go with it. So they have this residual irrationality. That would be like the situation the person's in who stops relying on their experience, um, but still has the experience. Okay, um, so that's the kind of undermining dimension of of uh, defending the epistemic charge thesis that I'm just trying, so far of all I've said was, here are some reasons that 
you might have for thinking that experiences are just the wrong kinds of things to be rational, irrational. And if we press on that idea and say, well, what is it about experiences that make them the wrong kind of thing? I think you'd arrive at these ideas about passivity or unadjustability. Um, but I think if we look closely at those ideas, we don't really, after all, find reasons for it to be precluded. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that they can be. It just means that one reason you might have had for thinking they weren't um, perhaps isn't as strong as it at first appeared. OK, but you know, why don't we stop beating around the bush and ask, what does, you know, I've went through this kind of, uh, um, I've went through these, I've gone through these different reasons for, um, that it, reasons for thinking that beliefs are in the house of reason and rejected them. And so that might leave you wondering, well, what is it about belief that make, puts them in the house of reason? Um, isn't there some feature of belief that explains why we apply epistemic norms to them? Um, um, okay, so what does make belief susceptible um, or what makes anything, any mental state, whether it's a belief or some other mental state, susceptible to having an epistemic status that can then be adjusted by other reasons or values or projections or whatever? What are the grounds of epistemic charge? That's what I'm asking when I say, what are the grounds of epistemic charge? What explains why a mental state is susceptible to being epistemically evaluated? Um, so here is an alternative positive picture of that, um, which is the idea that the epistemic charge of belief, let's just start with the case of belief, is grounded in the role that, of belief in the mind. It's not grounded in some further feature of the belief. Um, um, it's not grounded in any features of roots to belief or possible roots to belief, such as deliberation or being formed by reasons. It's rather, that's kind of looking upstream of the belief to what, how, what generates it. But I think we should look not at what generates the belief, but what the belief does in the mind. Um, and what it does in the mind, um, one thing it does is it belongs to the complete outlook of the subject, how the world seems to her. And um, um, Angela Smith, actually, an ethicist, has said something sort of similar about other, she's interested in your responsibility for your attitudes. Um, now, she's talking about responsibility, not epistemic evaluation per se, but the kind of similar, similar types of questions. Um, and I think she has somewhat similar answer. Um, OK, so I'm going to come back to this idea in a bit. So um, now what I want to do with you for the rest of the time is um, I want to give you a feel for what the uh, epistemology of perception would look like if experiences were epistemically charged. And honestly, one has really a lot of explaining to do. So um, just so you can even think about this thesis, I'm not trying to get you to accept it. Um, I just want to be able to think about what it actually says. Um, so there's various questions that arise right away, which is one question is, what's the, what would the scope of epistemic charge be among experiences? Would it just be like, you know, once in a while your experience is epistemically charged, or would it be that they're all epistemically charged? Um, and the answer to that question depends, um, depends on what the ground of epistemic charge is in experience. So um, if what makes the experience susceptible to this kind of evaluation is a feature of experience that all experiences have, then the scope would be very wide ranging. Whereas if the ground of epistemic charge was something that only occasionally experiences had, then it would be less extensive. Okay. Um, and so there's a scope question, there's a ground question, and then there's a question about modulation. What kinds of factors could modulate or adjust or change the epistemic charge of an epistemically charged experience? So I hope you can see the difference between the ground question and the modulation question. The ground question is asking, why are experiences 
um, susceptible to having these properties at all. So why are they the kinds of things that have some epistemic charge rather than none? Whereas the modulation question is kind of assuming that they have some epistemic charge, what kinds of factors could adjust it, um, make it go from positive to negative, or make it less or more? Okay. Um, now, I feel that I should tell you a little bit about why I'm asking these questions, is why isn't it, you know, you might think, look, here's some, here she comes in and says, here's some strange thesis that um, kind of goes against the way um, a lot of epistemologists have thought about the epistemic role of perception, and now here we're off to the races trying to figure out how life would be if the thesis were true. Why are we doing that? Um, I, I think I haven't told you enough about that, and I probably won't have time to tell you enough about that, but I want to give you a little bit of a sense of it. So um, my reasons for wanting to address these questions um, really start from cases like VVEX cases of projecting onto your experience possible cases of that, um, which um, those kinds of cases convince me that the, that forward-looking epistemic power of experience, that that power can be reduced due to the influence of psychological precursors. So I call that reduction downgrade in other places. Um, now, it has to be a big old argument for that. Some people would deny even that that much happens. But for me, I think there are, I, I have talked myself into thinking that that does happen. Um, and, um, and, but once you go that far of saying, well, the forward-looking epistemic power could be reduced by um, vanity or um, expectations or other factors upstream of experience, it can kind of seem to pull the punch to then go on and deny that that effect on the experience um, um, speaks to the rational standing of the subject at all. So, um, so, I mean, like in wishful thinking, Vivek is not off the hook. Um, you know, wishful thinking obviously detracts from Vivek's rational, rationality. Um, so on the view where Vivek's vanity influences his visual experience, so that's wishful seeing, on the view that all the, the only epistemic, um, on the view that the only epistemic effect of Vivek's vanity in visual seeing is that his forward look, the forward-looking power of the experience is reduced, but he's perfectly rational. It seems to kind of pull the punch, or it seems to be a sort of betwixt-between kind of position. Um, and you could ask, like, why draw the line between the irrational making and the non-irrational making influences on perception exactly there, with, you know, the forward-looking power is reduced, but Vivek himself, there's no detraction from his rational standing. So you, of course, may not agree. Um, that uh, Vivex, even the forward-looking power of his experience is reduced. But if you do agree, I think there's good reasons for that, um, then it definitely seems worth thinking about um, whether it's something even stronger is true, that it's not just that his epistemic power of his experience is reduced, but also that he himself is irrational in just the way that he himself is a little bit less rational in wishful thinking. Okay. Um, and as I hope I conveyed when I was talking about what epistemic charge is, um, if the forward-looking power, epistemic power of an experience can be reduced by things like vanity, um, then a straightforward explanation of that is that their epistemic charge is reduced. Okay, so that's why I'm asking, that's why I'm asking these questions. Um, okay, but then I don't want to just jump in and try to defend the thesis because, like I said, there's a lot of explaining to do. So I want to just end by talking a little bit about the scope and the ground um, of epistemic charge and how it might impact the global structure of justification. I've got no idea when I began. Um, Okay, that's fine. So let's, um, so here is um, one thing that I'm going to try to convince you of, I guess, which is that on the scope question, I think there's decent reason to think that if any experiences are epistemically charged, then being epistemically charged is basically a standard feature of experiences rather than some exceptional feature. So 
things like projection, those are exceptional. I mean, you know, it's not like you're constantly projecting, even with wishful thinking. Um, um, so projection is, you know, let's hope, uh, exceptional rather than standard. Um, but uh, epistemic charge, I think, if there are any experiences are epistemically charged, that just shows us in this framework, that just shows us that that particular modulator of epistemic charge is just one modulator, but it doesn't show us that epistemic charge itself is, doesn't even suggest that epistemic charge itself is exceptional rather than standard. Okay, so um, the reasons that I think there are for thinking that epistemic charge, if it's anywhere, it's kind of everywhere, um, come from considering two possible grounds for epistemic charge. So earlier, um, um, earlier I floated the idea that when you ask what makes beliefs belong to the house of reason, perhaps the answer is something about the role of beliefs in the mind rather than some feature of belief, um, and that role being that it contributes to our overall outlook. Okay, now experiences, every experience contributes to our overall outlook. You might, when I say outlook, I want to distinguish between our kind of, uh, what you might call your considered outlook, where you sort through all of the many, and there are many, contradictions between different things you believe or tensions between how things might look and how you might know they are and things like that. Those that your considered outlook kind of sorts through and says what you kind of explicitly are willing to proclaim all things considered. But that's just kind of a small fraction of what I'm talking about by your outlook, by which is your complete outlook. Everything that speaks to the way the world is, whether in the end you endorse it, um, however much weight you give it, um, that's what I mean by the complete outlook. All the ways in which things are presented to us, either provisionally or finally, with or without stability, an incremental way or a binary way, everything. Okay, so if that idea about what makes you belong to the house of reason is on the right track, then you would already expect that um, since experiences contribute to your outlook, and all experiences do that, it sort of falls out, that um, epistemic charge would be uh, very widespread. So I think there are two pretty different ways of developing this idea. Um, um, one of them is that what grounds epistemic charge and experience, so these are different ways of developing the idea that, you know, that your experience contributes to your outlook, because we can ask, well, what is it about your experience that makes it contribute to your outlook? Okay, and one answer is that its phenomenal character does that. So um, that's the first proposal about grounds that I want to talk through. Now, since phenomenal character, at least as I'm thinking about it, that is a feature that all experiences have, again, you can see how if that's the feature that's grounding epistemic charge, then epistemic, all experiences will be epistemically charged. So you can think about the phenomenal ground proposal which, um, um, as an argument. So this is at the bottom of page eight. Um, so premise one, all experiences have phenomenal character. Okay, now you know that since it's a two-premise argument, the key premise is premise two. Premise two, phenomenal character gives experience epistemic standing. Okay. Now, its standing might be modulated by defeaters, by other factors, um, but what makes it the case that it has some epistemic standing rather than none is its phenomenal character. Um, so conclusion, all experiences have an epistemic standing. Okay, um, there's an argument. Um, um, now, um, I, what motive, what's kind of behind that argument, what's behind the key premise is the outlook idea that I mentioned. Okay. Now, there's all kinds of things you want to know um, about how this would work. Um, for example, if you get to be epistemically charged just by having a phenomenal character, what kind of charge is it? Positive or negative? How much? Um, how should we think about that? Um, well, just as a starting observation, um, Normally, it seems reasonable to believe your eyes and your other senses, so I'm just 
repeating some platitudes here, but you know, if you want to know whether the sunset has begun, you can find out uh, by looking. So you, very ordinary perceptual experiences like that one can provide you with a kind of baseline amount of justification for believing the contents of those experiences or closely related contents. Now again, just like when I was talking about forward-looking power and I said, um, I mean, this is the forward-looking power just in another guise. I said, you know, experiences can have this power. It doesn't mean that they have it all by themselves. Well, similarly, if, you know, your experience gives you some reason to think the sunset has begun, that doesn't mean it does it all by itself. Maybe it needs some help from some background states, from some conditions such as there being no defeaters or other things. Um, it's not a claim about experience, having an experience being sufficient to be justified in those ways. Um, but that's just a starting observation. Um, and so a natural suggestion if you um, were trying to develop the phenomenal ground of epistemic charge would be that um, what the phenomenal character of experience does to it epistemically is it bestows the experience with an epistemic charge. And when it does that, it bestows a kind of baseline um, amount of positive charge on the experience, you know, reason to believe that, among other things, reason to believe that things are the way they appear. Now, maybe it's defeated, maybe there's other factors come along, but that's just a starting, um, that's what the phenomenal character does on a very natural picture. So if you read this part of epistemology, you have maybe encountered this label phenomenal conservatism, um, which is the position that says that just having an experience Having an experience absent defeaters, I'm not going to explain what that means right now, but having an experience um, absent defeaters um, suffices for you to have reason to believe what the experience tells you, roughly. And it's called that because there's this other thesis, epistemological conservatism, which says just believe merely the fact that you believe that P um, is sufficient for you to have some positive epistemic status to that belief. Um, so this is supposed to, these positions are supposed to be kind of similar. Well, you know, if no, if I think this label phenomenal conservatism is really a much better label for the position that says that phenomenal character grounds epistemic charge, because it's much closer to epistemological conservatism. It's much closer to saying that, um, that um, you know, just having the experience gives this positive epistemic status to the experience. It might not be the considered and ultimate status that the experience has. To find out about that, you have to know more about the subject's mind and circumstances. Um, but OK, I don't want to uh, confuse people who are familiar with this label by using it for something else than what you're already familiar with. Now, um, I've been talking about the positive charge that might be bestowed by phenomenal character as just you know one factor among many. Everything has to shake out and see how it ends up. Um, I have on the handout a bit about different ways that that could happen that I put in brackets because I figured we could go back to it if you want to talk about that. OK, now let me get to the um, um, thing I promised I would talk about, which is um, what would the impact be for the overall structure of justification if experiences were epistemically charged? And now, since we have, I hope you have your minds at least partly around um, a way that that could be true, a way that um, experiences could be epistemically charged because they have phenomenal character, and that would be a picture on which pretty much every experience, well, every experience, because experiences by definition have phenomenal character. If that phenomenal character is making them epistemically charged, then this picture, all experiences are epistemically charged. And now we can ask, well, gee, uh, where does that leave the overall structure of justification? Um, so um, remember at the beginning, I said that there, um, you know, it was 
one powerful idea in articulations of epistemological foundationalism and the idea of immediate justification, one powerful idea in the vicinity of those positions was that experiences can be unjustified justifiers. They can provide justification for beliefs without needing or being able to have any themselves. Um, and um, um, well, going with that idea, um, some people have argued that experiences can provide what they call immediate justification. So um, I have a, I think pretty, I have a definition of immediate justification at the bottom of page nine. Um, I'll try to convey the idea of it. You can look at the words too. Um, so a belief is immediately justified by an experience just in case there doesn't have to be any other proposition besides the one you believe that you have to be justified in believing. I'm sorry, this is so wordy, but it kind of has to be. Um, um, let me just back up. Um, I'm gonna try to give you the gist and I'm gonna have, leave the details for, for the handout. Um, but um, your, your belief is immediately justified, your belief that P is immediately justified by an experience, just in case there doesn't have to be any other proposition besides P that you need justification for believing in order to be justified in believing P by your experience. Then there are some wrinkles. Okay. Um, so um, um, in the notion of immediate justification, there is really a couple of different strands. Um, and one strand is the idea that you don't really need any source besides the experience to justify B if the experience immediately justifies B. And then a different idea is that there doesn't have to be any other proposition you have justification for believing in order to be justified in believing P if your experience justifies you in believing P. Um, now there's a third strand, which is that if you presume that experiences aren't epistemically charged, then um, what one thing you'll think is true if you believe in immediate justification is that if a belief is immediately justified by something, um, it's justified by something that isn't itself justified or unjustified. So I hope you can see how that's a third idea distinct from the ones that are actually built in to the notion of immediately justification. So I'm telling you all this because if epistemic charge was grounded phenomenally so that every experience kind of started out, like when you play Monopoly, you know, you get $50, I think, 50, you get some money. And then you go on and play Monopoly, but you just start off with your $50. So in the phenomenal grounding of epistemic charge, something kind of similar is true. The experience gets a kind of freebie, positive charge, and then it goes out into the, you know, the, um, the world, and it interacts with all the other parts of the mind and the external world, and that might adjust how much positive charge it has. Just like when you start playing Monopoly, then, you know, hopefully it doesn't all go to pieces, but, um, you know, you get more money, you get less money, you go bankrupt or you bankrupt other people, et cetera. Okay, so, um, got it, thank you. Um, so on this picture, the epistemically charged experience, it can still play a rational role very much like the role played by unjustified justifiers. Um, it's just that they're justified justifiers. So um, there doesn't have to be, you, there can still be immediate justification. It's just that the thing that does the immediate justification is still something which has an epistemic status. It's just not justified by anything else. It's like self-justifying. That's the way to think about it, maybe. Okay, um, now I have another bit that I won't go through all of, but I wanna mention it because um, my original title from when I was asked last year what I would talk about, I said perceptual inference, so this was the inference part. Um, um, there's another idea that, uh, about what might ground epistemic charge besides phenomenal character, and that's the idea that inference could charge it. Now this raises sort of a large can of issues, um, which I'm happy to talk through. Um, but really the upshot of this, which I'm not actually gonna go through, um, 
is that um, if you thought, so uh, the upshot of this is that if you think that experiences are, experiences are formed by inference. Now, psychologists have been saying forever, you know, percepts arise from inferences, like Helmholtz talked about unconscious inferences. And when epistemologists talked about inferences, they thought, okay, inferences, they begin, you know, from information you have already, and then you move on from there, from inference. Um, information you have already could be your other beliefs, maybe it could be your experiences, depending on your views about that. Um, but you certainly don't draw inferences of the sort the epistemologists talk about, it's generally assumed, to your perceptions. You draw them from your perceptions. So uh, here we have uh, the same word being used for what's either the same thing and people are disagreeing or different things and they're not disagreeing. Um, so I think this raises a bunch of fascinating issues. Um, but um, 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 when we talk about and I'm sympathetic to the idea that inferences that lead to experiences can modulate their epistemic standing, can modulate their epistemic charge. Um, a different role for them is that they might also ground the epistemic charge. They might be simultaneously the thing that, uh, a factor that can influence which charge an experience has and um, the thing that explains why the experience has some charge or other at all. Okay. Um, now, uh, that, and then if we ask on that picture, what does the global structure of justification look like? The answer is, it depends on what's gonna ground the premise, the epistemic status of the premise states in those inferences. So it's kind of like epistemology just starts all over again, um, except on the route to perception instead of just on the route from perception onward. Okay, so I will now conclude on page 11 um, by saying that um, when you think about cases like Vane Vivek, cases where some other psychological state of the perceiver influences their actual perceptual experience, um, it at least raises the possibility that the forward-looking power of experiences can be reduced um, by the influence of psychological precursors, even if Vivek in this case isn't aware of the influence. So it raises that possibility and there are debates about that. Um, but perhaps the ultimate moral to draw from those cases is that actually all experiences um, are epistemically charged. All experiences um, speak to the rational standing of the subject. It's just that we didn't see this fact. Why didn't we see it? Well, um, for one reason, because we didn't focus very much on cases of that sort of influence on perception. Um, and we didn't focus, therefore, on the epistemology of those cases. And alongside of that, we were kind of presuming that experiences are more different um, from beliefs than they actually are.